Hey Radio Rothbard fans, the Mises Institute has a new free book for you. Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at Mises.org slash RothPodFree. Hey guys, this is Thoat Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to Mises.org slash raffle, that's double R, raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, Mises.org slash events. So I hope to see you guys there, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin with the Mises Institute, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the national debt and the, uh, the annual deficit which then gets folded into the national debt year after year. And those numbers have just been getting bigger and bigger. And I think in the past, it, uh, it's just been generally ignored because interest rates have been so low. Uh, however, over the last five years, things have changed. So if five years ago I said, hey, here's an episode about the national debt, you would have kind of maybe rolled your eyes and thought, why do I care? Nobody, and it's just nothing's changed. The national debt goes up every year and it's never a big deal. Except now with interest rates going up and now with the national debt growing so much faster than it had been prior to, oh, let's say about 2018, um, it had already accelerated before COVID and then it just was off the charts sort of stuff uh, during COVID. And with interest rates going up, we're looking at it really just eating up larger and larger portions of the federal budget. And so it really, I think, has become more of an issue that requires some urgency and us paying some actual attention to it uh, to at least slow it down so that you avoid some sort of financial crisis um, that results because it is a driver of inflation. And we'll just talk a little bit about that here today going forward. Now, we have a guest today to talk about this. We have Jane Johnson. And you may, if you're a a fanatical reader of Mises.org. You may have noticed she has uh, several new articles. She's really just started sending us some great new material uh, over the last year to Mises.org. And she is a retired college economics instructor who currently teaches economics at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute in Southern California. She's a graduate of Vassar College and has graduate degrees from UC Berkeley and the University of Washington. And some of her recent columns have been on the matter of debt. And um, let's just uh, let's talk about that today. Uh, Jane, thank you for coming on. 
And for your article from February 16th, which is called The Federal Mega Debt is here to stay. And let's just let's just start off. You, you you and your article have some very rudimentary information where you just make sure and clarify the difference between the debt and the deficit. So why don't we just go ahead and start off with that where you can really just define what the debt is and what it means to have a bunch of federal deficits year after year and we can just kind of get started that way. Yeah. Well, I think you stated this earlier pretty nicely and succinctly. The the debt when people say the debt, is the outstanding amount at any point in time of the debt that's sitting out there. So it's, just, it's what economists call a stock concept. The other concept would be a flow, which is an annual budget deficit. And this is where I think a lot of people tend to get mixed up. It's a very basic distinction in economics, and it should be in everybody's mind, but I think there's a big confusion about it. A stock concept is something that you measure at a point in time, and that's 34 trillion right now. That's, yeah, you're laughing. Uh, that's the number 34 followed by 12 zeros. And I earlier did a piece uh, a couple of months ago that Mises Wire published called Millions and Billions and Trillions, Oh My, which was a takeoff on the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy saying to lions and tigers and bears, Oh My. And I was talking about how large these numbers are and uh, the difficulty that the human brain has in comprehending them. Anyway, the debt currently is. 34 trillion as of a month or two ago, it goes up all the time, but that's a good round number to think of. The deficit is what happens is published every month, every year. It's that flow concept, meaning more is spent than is coming in as revenue to the federal government. It's a flow concept. And of course, every year, every month that you have a deficit, the budget deficit, you're going to add to your outstanding debt unless there's some payoff mechanism where you can whittle down that debt. But that's, that's what this latest article is kind of addressing. Um, but, and we don't have anything in place, a mechanism to whittle it down. But uh, that's how I would characterize the difference between the outstanding debt and the ongoing monthly, yearly deficits, budget deficits. Mm -hmm. And so uh, how much are we going to be adding to this every year in the next 10 years, do you oh, think? Oh, gosh, it's, uh, is it $1.7 trillion? I, I see so many different figures because it's revised every day or so by the U.S. Treasury Department who handles all of these details, the spending and the taxing. The IRS, which brings in tax revenue, as we know, uh, reports to the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. It's in the Treasury Department. So you got the incoming revenues, you got the outgoing constant spending that Congress has authorized by legislation. And oftentimes a president will issue executive orders going around Congress to spend more money on certain things. And that's become a really common practice in the last several presidential terms. Um, so this goes on all the time, but it, it's, it's well over a trillion every month. Well, 
I'd have to look up the figure. I don't want to, I, sh I shouldn't say it without having verified it because it changes all the time. But it's, well, it's, also, it's a big number. <laughs> and you, can t you need to talk about it a little bit in averages too, right? Because if you, and if you're a nerd for this sort of stuff, dear listener, you can just go to the Treasury's website and they have a monthly report on revenue yeah. versus yeah. spending. And you can see the deficit and it, it can vary wildly, right? From month to yes. month, depending on how much revenue yes. Yes. is collected. Yes. And um, so it's not like it's a set thing every month but when we average it out we're talking about these very large numbers yeah i don't even have that in my beginning opening paragraphs of the article i'm looking at it right now um i was focusing more on the debt yes and i should have mentioned how much it is increasing every month i did not include well i think it's good for the readers to be aware though because you'll sometimes you'll see headlines where it's things like, oh, for the month of March, there was a big surplus in federal <laughs> yeah. collections, right? Yeah, because right. a bunch oh, of tax yeah. money might come in. Yes. And, and if you're not used to looking at these numbers, you might think, oh, well, I guess things are coming under control. That's things right. are. But a month later, well, not in April, but say in uh, later yeah. in the year, then you might have a month that just has a humongous deficit then. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the journalists who write these headlines and these articles are often remiss and uh, not at all clear. And that's part of part of our big problem out there, I think, is, is journalists who should know better are confusing people, whether it's deliberate or whether it's just incidental. I'm not sure. I'll not comment on that. But uh, they certainly do confuse people with the stories. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, particularly during a campaign year. We certainly would not want to suggest there's an agenda out <laughs> yes, there when it comes to indeed, reporting economic news. Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, well, one other issue that might confuse people uh, is the issue of unfunded liabilities. And you talk about that yeah, here yeah. in your article, right? Because then you'll hear about that. It's just this huge number, right? Much bigger than the 34 trillion. What does that, what does that mean when you're referring well, to that? that yeah. I don't have a comment in the article about that either. I tried to keep this within the word limit, so I didn't put this, all these details in. Yeah, unfunded liabilities are for, yeah, I do have a paragraph about that, are for things like the big entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the smaller ones like rent vouchers and food stamps, and there's a whole raft of uh, welfare type programs and redistribution of income programs that benefit significant numbers of people but those are not funded those are not built into these uh, deficit figures or the debt that the debt and the deficit are just uh, known figures of how much debt is outstanding out there and how much every month we spend more than we bring in in tax revenue um, this unfunded liabilities could be the biggest thing that catches up with this country and really causes pro big problems later. I'm just speculating, but yeah. We read that the Social Security commissioners are now predicting that um, the trust fund, which this all dates back to the days of FDR, you know, when he set up Social Security to be this revolving fund, you might call it, 
whereby you pay taxes, payroll taxes, during your working years, and it goes into the, the slush fund or whatever you want to get, the trust fund. And out of that later, you are going to receive benefits. This is, of course, there's a misunderstanding here that what you are paying in as a working person is what's being put in a piggy bank for you when you're retired. That is not, in fact, the case at all. Yeah, you know that. You're shaking your head. Yeah. A lot of people insist, well, I've been paying all my working years. I am entitled. I have to get. It's not a contract, though. It's not a contract the way state government pension funds are actually a contract. There's a big difference. This is a political social security is politically designed to be an intergenerational redistribution of income program. That is to say, at any point in time, the working people are paying the payroll taxes. Those are going into the trust fund, but out of that trust fund are coming all the social security benefits that are paying people like me who are retired. And, uh, but these are not my dollars that went in during my working years. The dollars I paid in during my working years went at that time to pay for retirees' benefits. So 20, 30, 40 years ago when I was working and paying in, um, those monies were not being put, my payroll taxes were not being put in a piggy bank. A lot of people have a misunderstanding about this. And it's, it's a hard point to, to make to people. They swear up and down. Well, I paid in. There was an, a Supreme Court case decision that came out in 1960 and it has never been revisited. The Supreme Court very clearly came down saying, just because you paid in payroll taxes does not guarantee that you're necessarily ever going to receive Social Security benefits. And I won't go into the details of the case, but it was a, about an immigrant from Bulgaria, an interesting story in itself, because he was later deported during the Red Scare of the 50s and 60s, uh, back to Bulgaria because he was a member of the U.S. Communist Party and kind of a troublemaker guy, and so they deported him. But his wife, who remained in the States, put this case through the court system, and uh, the, the justices came down saying there is no guarantee on Social Security. These are what are called the unfunded liabilities. They're not a contract. You're not entitled, entitled necessarily to get those benefits that you thought you were stashing away all these years. There's no guarantee. So yeah, we have unfunded liabilities. The big one's Social Security, Medicare that came into being in the 1960s with the Great Society, Medicaid at the same time. We've got pretty good estimates of, uh, there's a trust fund for Medicare Part A, which is the hospital part. There is no trust fund for Medicare Part B, which is doctor's office visits and other kinds of things that um, are billed to, to Medicare. Those come out of general tax revenues when Medicare uh, doctors bill and, and the system and that kind of thing. Medicare Part A trust fund is slated to be down to insolvency sometime in the next decade. Likewise, the Social Security Trust Fund. If nothing is done 
And this is what you always read, if nothing is done, and Congress doesn't want to touch these programs, it's, uh, what do they call Social Security, the third rail of politics, uh, touch it and you're dead. That's the old expression. Because, so nobody, even a second term president, I had hoped that when Trump was running in 2020 for a second term, that he would finally wise up and realize, gosh, we're gonna have to do something about Social Security and Medicare. Um, of course, uh, then somebody, enough people voted for a different guy running and who's in his first term and he's not about to touch it. So, uh, yeah, so um, it, it would take, I'm sure, at least a second term president who isn't going to run for re-elect, can't run for re-election because it is such a toxic issue. So uh, that's where we are on the, the two biggest unfunded liabilities, Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. But keep in mind, as I said, those are not built into these uh, debt and deficit figures at all. So, but they're out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're seeing the, the 32 trillion or these predictions of how it's going to be 50 trillion in 2035 or whatever the latest prediction is, that's just, that's not taking into account what people think they're owed, essentially, in all right. of these entitlement right. programs. I mean, I guess one other way to look at it is, um, right, if you take like a personal finance class, they'll, mm -hmm. they might show you, oh, you can go to the Social Security Administration site and you can put in your info and they'll, and your income and all that. And they'll, they'll, they'll set, they'll tell you how much you can collect in Social Security when you retire at age 70 versus 72 right. or whatever. Yeah. Now, so just imagine taking that number that they say they'll pay you for everybody combined, you get this really big number, but the reality is, is that the feds have no idea where they're going to get that much money. <laughs> right. And it's so, not built into any budget or anything. Yeah. Right. So that's then where you get this huge deficit is, oh yeah, we say we're going to pay everybody all this much money, but revenues clearly are nowhere near enough to cover yeah. that. Yeah. And so yeah, then you end up with this 200 trillion dollar uh number now of course in reality right they could always just say well and this will take us i think later to one of your your other topics then is okay so how are we actually going to pay off all of this stuff that yeah. we're supposed to pay now i yeah. guess on, on these on like these entitlements they can say well we're just not going to pay what we said we were going to pay that's um, called defaulting yeah <laughs> but yeah. since that's not a default on the actual bond that wouldn't be technically a default, would it? That would just be, we're not paying Social Security recipients what we said we were going to pay. That That's right. That's right. Um, because the way that program was set up in the 1930s, as I said, if, this was FDR's personal touch, I guess. He, he wanted a trust fund. He wanted people to realize they were paying taxes into it. There would hopefully be funds for their benefits when they arrived at retirement age. But you have to keep in mind, too, that people never lived as long in those days. Uh, if you look at the demographic statistics of death, ages of death and that kind of thing, people are living much longer these days. And that didn't get factored in uh, because it was, uh, well, it wasn't 100 years ago. It was, say, 90-some, no. 
almost 90 years ago, if you want to just think of the time frame, the late 30s when Social Security became law. So we're a ways from being 100 years ago. But um, this, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about how this system works, the Social Security system. Yeah. Um, I thought you were headed maybe into comments about, uh, unless you have more questions, you want to follow no, up? No, yeah, let's it. talk about what debt payoff might look well, like. Well, the article started out, and I was looking out the window here one day and thought, I wonder what it would take to pay off the $34 trillion. It's kind of a joke. I mean, this was in t this article, I have to confess, started out as kind of a joke. <laughs> because there really is no reasonable way to pay this off. But I've posed two possible models, both of which are joke material, um, one of which is simply very simple calculation. Take the $34 trillion grand total outstanding debt, which it was at that time a month or two ago when I was thinking about this, or it still is roughly. I mean, it's close enough for government work, as they would say. Uh, take that 34 trillion figure and divide by the total population, man, woman, and child in this country. And the figure I got from the Census Bureau as of January 1st, 2023, that's already a year ago, uh, 334,233,854. Okay, that's about what our population is. It's, it's bigger now because that was over a year ago. But you divide that out. It's a very simple calculation. And I got a very simple answer. Per capita uh, monthly payment. No, that's the other calculation. The, the calculation for uh, a simple payoff, simple payoff for every man, woman, child, woman and child in the U.S. At right now or a year ago, $101,725.18. That's 101,725.18 for every man, woman and child to come up with right now. And that's assuming there are no more deficits. Right. That's assuming a complete payoff with no more deficits to add to anything. It's right. Just, we can't it, emphasize this enough. This assumes that the deficit just stops. That, that's right. That that's the right. U.S. only pays what it takes in in taxes. Yeah. Pay off that huge outstanding debt that's out there on the horizon. 101000 almost 102000 rounding up. Uh, but not many people have this kind of spare cash lying around for every man, woman, and child. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's being facetious to even pose these numbers. And that's why I said this is almost a joke to talk about. Um, but then I thought, well, now, wait a minute. Is there another methodology we could look at? It's a little more sophisticated than just a simple division of one number by another number by the population figure. How about thinking of this as an amortized mortgage, for example? Most of us have looked at amortized mortgages. If you've ever bought a place or looked into buying a place, you know about amortized mortgages. You take out a mortgage large enough to buy a place with your down payment, but you know, let's just talk about the mortgage 
you take out. And you're going to make monthly payments, usually for 30 years. That's 360 payments, 12 times a year times 30 years, 360 payments at a specified interest rate that remains constant, unless you're in one of those floating rate plans. But I don't think banks are offering those. That that was the problem in the, the real estate crash uh, 10, 15 years ago everywhere. And I was living out in the desert, uh, California desert around Palm Springs at that time. And of course, the, the real estate crash there was very serious. It was serious everywhere, but uh, it was even worse out there in that outlying area in the desert. Anyway, so a lot of people were foreclosed. Uh, they couldn't make the payments. The rates were bumped up. There's no no longer any of that. I don't think banks are giving out any of these uh, uh, floating rate mortgages. They're not lending that way. So we're going in at a fixed rate. And I discovered that the current average rate on the $34 trillion debt outstanding right now is only 3.11%. That's because the bonds that were sold in the past, some of them were sold at very low interest rates, others at somewhat higher interest rates, but the average, some of them were 30-year bonds, some of them were shorter-term bonds, but the average over all of the debt that's outstanding is 3.11% per year. That doesn't doesn't sound too bad. Uh, mortgage rates are currently higher than that. They're around six, six points. I don't know, whatever they are, they change occasionally, but uh, that's what they've been. They used to be even lower than 3.11%. They were two something a year or two ago, but they're higher now. So 3.11%, um, what would it take if you took out a $34 trillion mortgage to build your ultimate dream house. Um, This is hypothetical, but because most of us have experienced what it's like to buy a place, I think a lot of us have, we can kind of maybe grapple with some of what would be involved here, taking a mortgage for a very large amount, 34 trillion, at an an interest rate of 3.11%, which sounds pretty reasonable in today's world. And you're going to make it a a 30-year mortgage, 360 payments. What would the numbers look like if you were to take out this big a mortgage? Is this manageable? And again, assuming no more deficits to add to the debt, that's a given. So just to pay off this $34 is this possible? Well, in Excel, an Excel spreadsheet, I used to use a lot of spreadsheets, and I still like Excel a lot. So I loaded up my Excel program, and I'm playing with the numbers, and the, uh, I discussed this in the, in the piece. Um, the, the function in Excel that you can put into any cell in a spreadsheet is PMT, which stands for payment, monthly payment. And you plug in three arguments. The monthly interest rate is the first argument separated by commas. The second argument is the number of mortgage payments, which is 360 for 30 years. And the mortgage loan amount, which is the 34 trillion. So I did this, just playing with the numbers. It's very interesting what happens. 
Uh, and I said, for readers who may want to try this at home, here's the way you do it. You type in PMT, paren, left paren, and then you put in these three arguments. And the three arguments are, of course, the, the monthly interest rate. You take that 3.11% and divide by 12. It's very simple. That's your monthly interest rate. It's just a linear division. And it ends up being about a quarter of 1% a month interest that you're paying. And you're going to pay off all your interest and all your principal if you do this for 30 years. That's the basis of the amortized mortgage calculation. So it's really easy using Excel. It'll produce the numbers for you. And of course, uh, the number of payments is uh, 360. And the mortgage loan amount is the 34 trillion. And that's the whole number spelled out, 34 followed by 12 zeros. And this is all shown in the, the text of this article. And so then you press enter <laughs> for the, the formula, and you get this answer, um, which is, uh, let's see, hundreds, thousands, million, billion. Total of 145 billion, 370 thousand, uh, or 370 million, uh, no, hundred, wait, I got a count right here. Hundred, hundreds, hundreds, thousands, okay, 145 billion and change, but, you know, or if you divide them by the per capita, by the population to get the per capita payment, monthly payment for 30 years at 3.11 annual percent rate. Um, is only $435 a month for every man, woman, and child. This seems incredibly low to me when I checked it and double-checked it. was kind of surprised, uh, very surprised, um, per person. Seems, seems kind of high for a child with no income, though. What? Seems kind of high when you're a child with zero income. And yet you're still liable for the four per month. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole thing's a joke, as I was saying right. earlier. The whole thing is a fantasy. I would say it's a fantasy. It's it's pie in the sky. But well, Jane, I took this even further. I, mm -hmm. I, I opened my own Excel spreadsheet and yeah. I put it in just so I double checked your work. And yes, it checks out. But then what I did is uh, I thought, uh, this is if you're a if you're if you're a finance student, this is a very exciting episode. But otherwise, you may have trouble following along. However, nevertheless, I uh, I created an amortization schedule for this. So if you're bought a home recently, you'll remember your amortization schedule, which shows off each period how much you paid off in interest versus principal, and then you're in the right, right. That. So I, yeah. I created the table, and, the amortization table. Good for you. Yeah. And, <laughs> Well, I used an online calculator. I didn't do it from scratch. But yeah. the uh, yeah, so just the first year, you're paying only you're paying a trillion dollars in interest. That's right. But you're only paying off six hundred and ninety-six billion in principal. That's right. That. That's the way the amortization project uh, process works. And uh, I don't know if all home buyers fully comprehend this. You're not paying off uh, the same amount of interest in principal every month. At the beginning of a mortgage, you're paying almost entirely interest because logically your huge outstanding mortgage balance is, is still out there. And so you're paying a ton of interest on it as you well 
figured out. And a teeny, teeny amount of principal. Toward the end of a mortgage, it's the opposite. You're paying very little in interest because your balance is way down and you're paying mostly principal. But that's the whole beauty behind the amortized mortgages. People don't have to realize that. All they know is they have a flat monthly payment for 30 years. It's like rent. It's like paying a constant level of rent. And most people have been renters before they buy a place. So it's easy for them to transition from thinking about paying the landlord every month a flat amount and paying my mortgage amount every month at a flat amount. And that's whoever created the amortized mortgage. And it wasn't that long ago. It was, um, it could have been a hundred years ago or even less. Years ago, in the early part of the 20th century, for example, if you bought a house, you didn't pay an amortized mortgage. You had to save the money yourself for 20 years, 30 years in a savings account or somewhere so that you'd be able to pay off your huge mortgage amount and then burn the mortgage. And that's what people used to talk about, burning the mortgage because they were free and clear. Um, you can still speak of burning your mortgage when you're done with your 30 years of payments, but um, you were not given this option of an amortized mortgage, which is the same dollar figure every month. So the, the, the invention by the finance people, the creation of the amortized mortgage concept was a major breakthrough, which allowed people to be able to buy houses. They didn't have to save it themselves. Saving money for a 30-year period to pay off a mortgage is difficult. For well, what you've just said, of course, makes all perfect sense in the private sector for a normal homeowner, right? Yeah. But your whole exercise here, of course, illustrates, as you've noted, the absurdity of trying to apply the exercise to the government. And I think we can see that, right? First of all, you've got this 435 bucks per month that everybody's got to pay, man, woman, and child, right? Yeah. So totally unfeasible for the unemployed, for the elderly, yeah. um, for the young, right? Yeah. So that, of course, that's not going to happen. But then look, you can imagine how just uh, say 10 years is forever in politics. Right. So you somehow have a situation where it's like, OK, we've somehow managed to stop the deficits already. We're in fantasy land. But let's say that right, happened. Right. We're not adding any more to the debt. Right. All right. So for the next 10 years, we're going to do a payoff plan using this 30 year amortization period yeah. uh, or plan. OK, great. Let's do it. So you start and 10 years go by. And, and somehow you're squeezing that 435 bucks out of toddlers and out of 90-year-old women and all of this stuff. And so now 10 years have gone by, and let's look at our, amort at our amortization schedule. Okay, so we've, in interest, we've paid approximately, oh, almost $10 trillion. Um, but so we haven't actually, so that hasn't actually reduced our $34 trillion. That's right. Now, let's look yeah. at the principle. At, at this point, over that 10 years, it looks like just kind of eyeballing it that we've now reduced uh, by about, uh, let's say, $7.5 on onto that. So after 10 years of this, we've, we've paid a boatload of interest and we've managed to get ourselves down to, oh, wow, $27 trillion in debt left. Yeah. Um, gee, 
well, what happens at the end of the 10-year period? Oh, anything, right? There's a war. There's some sort of major demographic shift, a new a pandemic, a, yeah. right? There's a pandemic. Ideology <laughs> changes. There's a nat natural disaster, and now oh, right. we're back to adding debt again. Well, then yeah, within yeah. two years, you've completely undone the whole thing. So you yeah, can just yeah. see the impossibility of it all. Yep, I think you've written the sequitur to my piece. You've just written it. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. Sure. I had to stay within a word limit, or I thought I had to, and this could have been much longer. Uh, to spell out what you've just gone into, because uh, I started out thinking, yeah, I should show the amortization table figures just as you followed up with, and you did the right thing. Um, I knew that I would it would get too long, um, and I didn't want to get into that, although it's a very important follow-up issue. You should write a response to this. Or somebody right. should. Well, or I could. But, I will do. But Sometimes I, I do this in power and market. I'll just do an event. You, you write a lot of good pieces. I know. I've, I've read your stuff. <laughs> and uh, this this should add some some more grist, grist to the mill here because it's a very follow, important follow-up point. To well, point let's go out to the, the final difference. issue here then, which is, so since it's obviously not going to be paid in this way, yeah. how is it going to how are they going to actually deal with the debt <laughs> going forward what's the reality of it yeah this is my final paragraph um which i ended by saying this is a topic for another day those are my words but i wanted to remind the readers that there are exactly four ways that any government whether it be federal state local or whatever can get its hands on resources to do with by itself, whatever it may want to do with resources from the private sector. And the, the four ways are outright confiscation of property, but that's not legal or constitutional in this country because we hope we have the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution that forbids uh, confiscation or expropriation of property for public use, uh, unless there's just compensation to the property owner. That's the phrase used in the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which they added when they wrote the Bill of Rights. It's in there in the Fifth Amendment. It's called the Takings Clause, the Takings Clause. If government takes private property, like they put a freeway through the land where your house sits, they have to pay you just compensation. And you can argue about what is just compensation, but it has to be something reasonable. And so that's not even allowed constitutionally in this country. So that, but that's the first way the government could take resources. The second way, of course, is taxing, taxing power of Congress. We have a lot of documentation on that. Congress passes tax law all the time. Uh, the third way is issuing debt. We certainly see a lot of that. And then the fourth way is simply inflating the currency, um, which harms lenders, harms everybody, but particularly lenders who have in good faith bought government bonds, let's say. Um, so inflation is very destructive. I think people sort of inherently know this, but they don't want to really talk much about it. 
That's why there's such concern about inflation, and rightly so, right now. And it's not even that serious. I mean, three point something percent, that's very little, historically speaking, but it's, it's hitting people in the pocketbook. So inflation looks like the only plausible method here of reducing the size of the outstanding debt. And I suppose you could do some calculations. What level of inflation, what percentage would it take to get that 34 trillion debt down to a level year by year by year to where people could, could handle it and, and comprehend it? You know? um, and it would have to be a pretty high rate of annual inflation. I don't even really want to think about exploring that. I did not attempt to. But my last sentence is that some people would say that this fourth way of that government can behave um, is perhaps what we're beginning to see in this country and elsewhere around the world, because debt is a problem everywhere. Um, but then I said, that is a topic for another day. And it has to be, and I had to end that way. So. You keep your finger on the pulse of actual politics uh, pretty closely. I mean, obviously inflation is, is a factor here. Is there any way you think they would attempt politically to use some of these other uh, issues? I mean, do you think anybody could run on the issue of we, we just we need to create a, um, a debt buy down tax? Right. Oh, this tax will only go to um, reducing our payments on the deficit or something like that. You see any chance of anything like that happening? Well, I think I understand what you're asking about. One thing we read a little bit about is uh, proposals for what they're calling a fiscal commission, which would be um, there's a bill pending in the Senate, perhaps. I just read about it a couple of days ago. The House and the Senate are working on proposals to create a bipartisan fiscal commission with members appointed from both parties by the bodies themselves, House and Senate, by the executive branch. I don't know how many people it would consist of, but a, a fair number, I guess. They did this with something a few years ago uh, called the Base Closure Commission. They set up a, they, they knew they wanted to close some old uh, army bases, Navy bases, Air Force, and so forth. But nobody could agree on which ones because it hits individual states differently. If you close a big one in this state, you got to close another one in the other states, and it gets unfair and all this thing. So um, they appointed a bipartisan commission that actually came up with a list that everybody could agree to and put it in front of Congress for an up or down vote to close this list of bases, uh, military facilities. And you know, it actually worked. Uh, they came up with uh, agreement, one vote, up or down. No arguments, no amendments, just up or down. It actually worked on base closures. And uh, we saw bases being closed all over the country. They've closed some. And, and there were rationales for each of those, um, that they, why they weren't needed anymore. There was a story behind justification. Um, but so in that setting, 
the commission idea did work, but we're talking here about a much, much scarier issue. So I'm a little skeptical, but this is being bounced around. I say bounced around. And and proposals are being made in the House and Senate. Uh, I wish I could tell you which one. There was one in the Senate, as I said, just a couple of days ago. Um, I don't even know if it has a, a Senate bill SB number assigned to it yet and whether it would get through committees and votes and that kind of thing. But it would ideally set up a commission with a bipartisan participation to research this for a year or two. I'm sure they'd have a big staff looking into all the pros and the cons of how to deal with this debt and deficit issue. And it would have to be an up or down vote. And that's probably really hard to come by in Congress these days. So I'm not holding my breath on something like that. But it's one thing that I hear being discussed, casually discussed. I don't know that it's going to be real serious, but so um, that's that's the only thing I can think of. I, uh, we see that uh, the congressmen and senators really have a hard time negotiating on just about any topic. So well, the, it's... The, the, it's there was one attempt at this actually in 2010 uh, in a kind of response to the Tea Party pressure and all that sort of stuff. You, you had the, the Simpson-Bowles Commission. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and that, yes. That, that proposal, um, which included capping um, this discretionary spending, had tweaks to taxes, increases in some, broadening the yeah. base for some, decreasing yeah. some with the, the, with the goal of both. Uh, that that uh, had some, some changes to Social Security, had some changes to Medicare. That went up, finally got a full vote, 382 votes against it, 38 in favor of it. And that was in 2010, dealing with a much, a much smaller um, uh, a deficit problem as we had right there, which again kind of goes to the lack of any sort of, of political will to address any of these issues uh, at all. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, 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 can, they, can, they can form a commission, they can talk about it, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, I mean, a, a similar attempt, I mean, if we going back to the, the topic of Social Security reform, um, actually mm. one second term president tried to attempt this coming off of a major midterm election. And it is very rarely that there's anything hinting towards the positive on this show when we address the presidency of George, a, uh, George W. Bush. Mm. Uh, but in 2005, right, he actually stated the union address. He brought up um, – some form of, of social security reform, allowing younger Individual Americans, yeah, yeah, allowing yeah. Americans to invest rather than put it into this the the, the, the beloved uh, trust yeah. fund there, yeah. and that that got and again this this was peak Bush right this was right after the twenty four uh, two thousand four election Republicans had control of both sides of the aisle and that went nowhere and so right. again we, we've seen these attempts in the past right. um, but with the problems being smaller than they are today and you know there's there's been absolutely no meaningful interest in this sort of stuff that's right and, and of course the conversation is changing a little bit because of the the interest on on the debt itself again we're now at you know trillion dollar um debt service at right now um yeah. and and you know that's that's only you know if if we don't have a return to the low interest rates that we had that number's only going to continue to go up yeah that's um, right. yeah so i mean it, it is it is a gordian knot of a problem and um <laughs> Yeah, you know, your yeah. points are right. You're, yeah. you're right on target. Yeah. No, it's a it's a discouraging outlook. Um, thanks for bringing up Simpson Bowles. Uh, 
I'd forgotten. Well, I never not forgotten it, but I mean, it's 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 history at this point, and it never went anywhere. Yeah, and George Bush's idea. Thanks for bringing that up. His idea was uh, a private accounts within Social Security, which we don't have now. I mean, there's this one big sort of slush fund. It's not even a trust fund, as I said. Well, no, the Social Security trust fund is a trust fund. The Medicare Part. B is not a trust fund. And that one's going up constantly because people are aging and they have more physical and mental ailments. And those costs, the Medicare, are only going up uh, exponentially, uh, not even linearly, uh, every year as people get older. It's great to live old, to be old, and if you retain your health and mentality and everything. And I'm 82 myself, I'll tell you. And uh, it's great to be, you know, still healthy, but you never know. And uh, I, think about, I think about these things. My generation is the silent generation. We're dying off, fortunately dying off, for the sake of everybody else. And the baby boom, the baby boomers. Then you've got a real big issue because you guys who are, boomers and even generation x that follows are uh, numerous especially the boomers um, and beginning to retire and want to take their benefits and approaching 65 and will join medicare soon so um yeah th these are the daunting uh, prospects out there on the horizon but thank you for bringing up all those examples because um they're 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 all relevant and so that's why it's it's hard to be very optimistic about a fiscal commission but people are talking it up right now so there will be some headline stories but who knows so well where would we be on Radio Rothbard or any podcast featuring me that didn't leave you on a downer note when the end of the podcast came. <laughs> yeah. So yes, all your brilliant ideas for getting a hang a uh, hold of the fiscal situation. They've already been tried as though noted and, <laughs> no. and went yeah. nowhere. Um, yeah. Your two choices are probably default and inflation. Those are uh, probably yeah, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid you're right. Yeah. So with yeah, that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of uh, Radio yeah. Rothbard. I, I thank you, Jane, for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be on. It was fun. And thank you for your article. Uh, thank you, though, for joining us, as always. And for everyone listening, uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>